0: How many of you have had the experience of being in a relationship with somebody who is an expert in something that you do not know anything about? It's it's interesting. This can present you with certain kinds of challenges. Uh, One of the scenarios that takes place is that the the people who are experts in things can talk at some length about what they are experts about. Um, A great length, uh, unimaginable length, actually. And if you're the person who uh, is not used to or informed or whatever, then there's several things that are striking. One is it's mystifying how they have so much enthusiasm for this thing, because you're listening to it going, my gosh, this is impossibly boring. Uh, For me, it would be somebody talking about computer coding, about which I know absolutely nothing except that it's binary. But I'd have to look that up. So, the other thing that is true is that we, when we're on that end of it, we're not appreciating the importance of what it is this person is talking about. And that's really the problem is that we're uneducated, and because we're uneducated, we fail to join into the enthusiasm, and we fail to see the real, uh, why does this matter about the topic? So, I'm bringing this up this morning because I think all of us, to greater or lesser degrees this morning are in this particular situation. We all this morning have something of a handicap. There might be a few exceptions in the room, but I bet you not many. And the handicap is this. You weren't born Jewish, and you did not grow up in the Jewish culture. You didn't grow up in the Jewish religious practices. You didn't grow up with an intimate knowledge of Jewish history. And so when somebody comes along who starts to talk about all of those things in some detail, you may be thinking, my gosh, this is impossibly boring, or what is this guy actually talking about? I don't get it. Now, if you read the book of Hebrews and you know nothing about Jewish history and culture and religious practices, that's kind of how it goes. And I don't know if you've ever done that. I can remember doing that. The first time I read through the book of Hebrews, I thought, what is this guy talking about? So, this morning, we wanna try to fix a little bit of that. Now, that's an ambitious statement, and I, I know that we can't do all of it this morning. That, that would be a task of a lifetime, to actually fully appreciate the ways in which the Jewish history and culture and religious practices are, were a foundation or a context uh, for God to prepare the world for Jesus. That is a lifelong study, but, we can, we, can, we can draw out some pieces this morning that I'm hoping you'll take with you, and I'm hoping when we leave today, we will be a little bit better informed, and so when the author of Hebrews starts telling his story, we won't go, my gosh, this is impossibly dull, or why is he bothering to talk about this? But we'll read the book of Hebrews and say, oh, I get it. I want to read some more of that. I want to find out some more about what that guy was talking about. That's what I'm hoping will happen this morning for all of us. So to that end, let us pray. Lord, we are, we are needy people this morning. We're told in your word that spiritual truth is spiritually uh, grasped and that we need your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and our hearts to receive from you. So we pray for that this morning, Lord. Will you open our hearts and our eyes and our minds, help us to hear from you, help us rightly treat your word of truth. And we pray that this would all be to your glory this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so a little bit of context here. Early Christian converts were, min, were uh, I don't know what the percentages were, I don't know if anybody knows, but a great many of them were Jews. They were, Jesus was sent first to the house of Israel. Paul later took the gospel to the Gentiles, and that was something of a shocker uh, that you can read about in the book of Acts. But these new converts came from a Jewish background. They were being persecuted in a variety of ways. And the, uh, the author of Hebrews is writing to address some problems that were going on for the, the believers in this area. He says in Hebrews that they were being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and that they suffered the seizure of their property. And because of this, and perhaps because Jesus had not yet returned, they were losing heart and they were even considering returning to their old Jewish religious practices. In other words, they were starting to wonder if perhaps they may have been a bit hasty in their decision to accept this Jesus as their Messiah. That is why the author of Hebrews, who we don't know who that was, by the way. Uh, people argue about it. It's, it's a, probably a great argument, but all I know is he was smart and he was... He was very well informed and, and he cared about these people, and he wanted them to understand why it would be a bad idea to go back to their old Jewish religious practices. So in this context, let's take a look at our first passage, which is in Hebrews chapter four. Now I'm gonna give you a warning this morning. I'm gonna read a ton of scripture this morning, and I'm not gonna say a ton about all of it, or else, like last week, we would have been here till five o'clock. Well, this week, it's kind of the same thing. But what I'm hoping will happen is you're gonna take some of this stuff home with you, and you're gonna reread Hebrews chapter nine and chapter 10, and chapter five, and chapter four. Chapter two is good, too. I'm hoping that your thirst or understanding God's word is gonna be like tweaked today in a big way. You're gonna go home and say, no, forget the barbecue, I need to read Hebrews. Hebrews chapter four, starting in verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. About this we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So just bear in mind all this stuff that we're talking about this morning is really basic <laughs> according to the author of Hebrews. He's like, look, you guys have gotten kind of dull of hearing and I know you're kind of wavering in your faith. I'm going I'm to go over some things for you but really what I'm doing is pretty basic and there's a ton more we could tell you but we can't, because, well, you know, you're kind of you're kind of on the weak side right now. Now for most of us, this concept of a priest does not mean much. And even if we have had exposure in the past to uh, churches or religious organizations that do have priests, it probably did not bear a great deal of resemblance to the ancient Hebrew practices. that the priest would have engaged in uh, in in the temple or before that in the tabernacle. And so when we hear priest, we get different kinds of ideas in our head than what would have been going around in the mind of a first century Jewish convert to Christianity. So let's take a look at some of the basics that they would have been familiar with and see how this affects our understanding of the scripture. you got to love a good laser pointer, don't you? This is the tabernacle. Uh, so those of you who know your Jewish history, um, and don't quiz me on it because I'm no expert, but those of you who know your Jewish history uh, know that the, the Jews, when they were uh, led by Moses out of Egypt, uh, they were del- Moses was delivered instructions uh, from God to... Uh, put together this tabernacle, and they carried it with them throughout their time in the wilderness. And the layout of the tabernacle is very similar to what you're going to see in the Temple of Solomon, which we're gonna show in a minute, and then also in the second temple, which we'll take a look at after that. But you have a basic, uh, the, the, in, in all of these, there is a, an area here, a courtyard, where the sacrifices take place. And so there's, a, there's an altar on which the sacrifices are, are burned. There's tables for the, the, uh, the slaughtering process. And then you have, this is where the priests would be working in this area. Now there's an entrance here to what is called the, uh, the holy place. And that is, uh, this is really the, what becomes later the actual body of the temple itself and inside there are two sort of compartments or two rooms. The first one, the larger room, has a variety of things that were important in, in the, the religious practices that the priest engaged in. Uh, the altar of incense, the lampstand, the table of the showbread. And then you see right here, there's kind of, it's, I don't know how well you can see that, but there's sort of this barrier, uh, and that's a cutaway. It would have gone across the whole thing. But this is the veil, or sometimes called the curtain, depending on your translation. And what this thing did was it separated this place, the holy place, from what was inside the other end, which is called the Holy of Holies. Now in the Holy of Holies, you've got the Ark of the Covenant uh, and its golden lid called the Mercy Seat. This had the the rod of Aaron that budded, it had some manna that uh, was preserved in a golden uh, container, and it also had the copy of the uh, Ten Commandments, uh, the stone tablets. And this is very sacred, about which we don't have time to go into, but there's lots of stories that have to do with the Ark of the Covenant, uh, very few of which have anything to do with Harrison Ford. So, the priest would take the blood of the sacrifice into uh, the holy place and th- th- these articles, uh, these different uh, instruments of worship would be sanctified by the sprinkling of blood. Okay, let's go on to the next slide. This is Solomon's temple. And you can see that uh, it, it's changed a bit. They're, they're not mobile, right? They don't have to pack this thing up and carry it around with them. So instead of having a tent wall around it, um, you know, we have other, other things and wait till you see the second temple, that's amazing. But so this was built by Solomon and it, you can see the temple portion itself has the same division of two chambers, the same veil Uh, the Holy of Holies in the back and the Holy Place in the front. The priests would go into the Holy Place uh, routinely, but the Holy of Holies was sacred and and they would only go into the Holy of Holies one time on the Day of Atonement uh, per year. The veil, pretty interesting. Uh, This is approximately 30 feet wide Uh, 40 feet high, and most references that I saw said it was four inches thick. It it made of heavy fabric. So, boy, no matter how you figure that, that's an imposing thing. I I don't, I I should have figured out what that would look like compared to our stage. Um, but I'm guessing 40 feet is well above what what, uh, we're talking about ceiling heights here, and, I don't know, this looks like a little bit more than 30 feet wide, but imposing a wall, a wall of separation between where the priests could be and where they could only go on this day of atonement. Now in there, you'll also see the cherubim. Um, these things are carved out of, out of wood, and, and I, I'd have to look back. I think they might have been overlaid with gold, but they were, they were at least first carved. They're 15 feet high, they have a wingspan of 15 feet, and there's two of them, and they kind of side by side, and their wings touch the walls on the sides, and they touch each other in the middle. 15 feet tall. So, I, you know, I, that, that's imposing. If you needed something to try to represent the glory of, uh, of what it might actually look like in heaven, I think they gave it a really good shot. I don't know what it was like to go in there on the Day of Atonement. Can you imagine? newly appointed high priest, first time. You've heard about it. The last guy who had the job told you about it, but you've never done it, and you go in there. Can't even imagine. Let's take a look at the next slide. This is Herod's temple. Solomon's temple uh, was pretty much destroyed in 587 BC, uh, Babylonian captivity and it gets repaired and reused, but then when Herod the Great comes on the scene, um, like, I don't know, 35 BC, something like that, he, he has big ideas. If you know anything about Herod the Great, it, it's really clear, he had big ideas, he did a lot of big things, he took charge of a lot of things, and he wanted the temple to be something really, really special. So he increased the height uh, by like 20 feet you couldn't mess too much with the inner dimensions because they were really specified. But he, uh, he made it bigger. We've got these impressive walls around the whole thing. Um, in terms of the size of it, up here, this is kind of a nifty little comparison. This is what a football field would look like. And this is the temple and courtyards. So uh, it looks like about four football fields to me. So those of you who have spent your, your weekends this summer out at soccer tournaments, you know about how big the temple is if you think about four fields laid end to end, or kind of two side by side with two. The Gentiles' court was outside the wall. Anybody could be there. It, you, to be in the women's courtyard, I believe you, believe you needed to be uh, Jewish. I don't think the Gentiles were allowed in here the women were not allowed into the next area, um, which is kind of hard to appreciate. It's not very large, but it's sort of through this little passageway here. And then this is the courtyard where the priests were, were conducting the sacrifices. So now we're back to that design there, that model that looks very similar to the tabernacle. And here you have the entrance to the holy place, and inside you have again the uh, the veil separating the holy place from the Holy of Holies. This is a really imposing structure. it's very tall, it's very ornate it, and, and the, there's a series of stairs that, that kind of take you from one place into the next, and so there's a, there would be this real sense of approach and awe if you were a Jew and you were approaching this place of worship so sacrifices were offered a lot sacrifices were offered in the morning they were offered in the evening they were offered for special purposes if you had committed certain sins they were offered if they if you had certain Conditions and needed to be cleansed, if you'd become unclean and ceremonially unclean in some way, then there were sacrifices that would be offered. This was a place of, of fairly perpetual sacrifice. But all of those sacrifices would have been taking place in this outer courtyard, and the Holy of Holies would have been largely uh, untouched. So who is doing all of this? We have priests who were of the tribe of Levi. And Aaron, who was a Levite, he, he was or, uh, chosen as the first high priest and ordained by God as, as the high priest and his and his offspring. So the high priest position tended to be uh, inherited, if you will, through the line of Aaron. There was just one high priest. They tended to serve for life. So if, once you're in, you're, you're in until you, I guess, it's sort of like Supreme Court justices, I, I guess, would be our, our uh, closest comparison. So let's take a look at what the high priest looked like, or at least what the, they think he looked like. You'll notice, first off, that the high priest had two sets of garments. Uh, I learned a number of things when I this study, which happens every time you preach, uh, I would encourage you to do it sometime, because you will learn things that you never thought you were, had, that you had no idea about, and this was one of them for me. High priest had two sets of garments. The one you hear about all the time is this one over here on the right, with the uh, the blue robe, and the, uh, the ephod, which has the ornate uh, breastplate, and uh, there's a gold crown up here, and there's these uh, epaulets on, on the, the shoulders and, and it's all very symbolic. The, the stones represent the 12 tribes of Israel and they have the names of the 12 tribes inscribed on them. They're all different stones. The names of the 12 tribes are inscribed on the, the shoulder uh, pieces, uh, six on one side, six on the other. So there's a lot of symbolism um, contained in, in the ephod and both in the materials that it's made of and, and the way that it was uh, constructed. Again, I would encourage you, uh, go read the book of Leviticus. Go read some sections in Exodus. Let's increase our Old Testament quotient. I love this picture. Um, I, I included it not because I needed to, but I just thought this was a great-looking guy. <laughs> I mean, if, if, you were, uh, if you were an Old Testament Jew, wouldn't you want your, this guy to be your high priest? I, I would. He he looks thoughtful, he looks kind, but you, 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 again, you can see the shoulder pieces and the, and the breastplate on the ephod. Great looking guy. Let's go back to the, to the other high priest slide for a second. So th- these are the high priest's linen robes. You do not hear much about the high priest's linen robes, but you can read about them in Leviticus 16 if you wish. Leviticus 16 will take you through um, what happened on the Day of Atonement which we're going to talk about in a little bit of detail here in a minute. On the Day of Atonement, when the priest, the high priest, would go into the Holy of Holies, before he would go into the Holy of Holies, this is what he would put on, the white linen garments. On the Day of Atonement, the priest would offer a bull for himself and his household. He would sacrifice this bull and he would carry the blood into the Holy of Holies, sprinkling the blood before and over the mercy seat. Now this is actually his second trip into the Holy of Holies that day. The first trip in is to burn incense before uh, the Ark of the Covenant. It's all very prescribed. It's a great read. It's fascinating. It's foreign to us. We have nothing else to compare it to, but it's important for us, if we're gonna understand Jesus, our great high priest we have to know a little bit about this stuff so he goes in first burns the incense comes back out changes clothes there's a bunch of clothes changing that goes on this day he offers the bull for himself and for his household he carries the blood into the holy of holies sprinkles it before the and over the mercy seat then he comes back out i think there's another clothes change he sacrifices a goat this goat is a sin offering for the people for all of the people of Israel. And again, he then takes the blood back into the Holy of Holies, sprinkles it before the the Ark of the Covenant and over the mercy seat. Finally, another goat is brought forward and the priesthood lays his hands on the head of this goat and the sins of the people are confessed, they're imparted to this goat and this goat gets sent out into the wilderness. Symbolically carrying away the sins of the people from them. Now, I'm going to dispel an urban legend this is like the the thing that i i when i got into it i went what no way you're kidding because i looked up this thing that i thought was going to be this really cool thing to include in the sermon and it's bunk how many of you have heard that the high priest wore this robe with bells on it and he would go into the holy of holies and as long as the bells were tinkling they all knew he was alive y'all heard that I've heard that. How many of you have heard that they tied a rope around his leg or around his waist so that if he died while he was in there, they could yard the body back out? All right. Well, that's what I thought, too. And it's a great story. I mean, people did die by doing things incorrectly around the Holy of Holies. Aaron had a couple of sons that, that died because they offered incense in an improper way before the Lord. A couple of other people, another guy at least, died when he touched the Ark of the Covenant. He was trying to steady it when it was looking a little unsteady. So, I mean, it's not a far-fetched story, right? If the high priest messed up, he could die in there. I thought it was a great story. Turns out it's just that. It's a story. There's nothing in the Bible about a rope. And once you read through how detailed everything is that touches the high priest, you've got to believe that if there was a rope there'd be something written about it. On top of that, there's no bells on the white linen. I mean, even if you like the robe story, he didn't have any bells on when he went into the Holy of Holies. Read about it, Leviticus 16. Okay, I was a little disillusioned, I gotta admit, because I like the story, but I kind of like it. I'm kind of getting used to it. I I like it better this way, actually, because I think the symbolism of taking off all of that stuff, all of that outside stuff that was so impressive, that was so valuable, that was so precious, that would perhaps even make the high priest look like he was in an elevated position. All of that stuff comes off. He's got nothing. He's got nothing except the white robes, the linen, Linen, I, I, I believe, represents something that, that did not uh, contain the work of man, and, and so it was, it was a, a holy garment, but the holiness was not from the priest. I just like that idea that I'm not all that. I take all this stuff off, I humble myself, I go into the Holy of Holies, what have I got? I got blood, that's all I got. I've got a sacrifice. I hope you're not too disillusioned this morning. Okay, that is a quick tour. And it was as quick as I could make it and I still took too much time. So what we're gonna do now is we're gonna, we're gonna move on to talk about some of the passages in Hebrews with a little bit of this in mind. Let's go back to our, our text that we opened with this morning. Since within we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. The high priest passed through the veil. Jesus, our high high priest, our great high priest, he passed through the heavens. He didn't just take the blood into a physical place made by man. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We talked about this last week at some length. Jesus is a high priest who gets it. Tempted in every way. I'm not gonna tell you about my temptations. You're probably not gonna tell me about yours. But the scripture says Jesus, as our high priest, experienced all of these temptations. He didn't sin but he knows what it's like. Let us then draw with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He then goes on to give us kind of the job description of the high priest in the first part of chapter five. Every high priest is chosen from among men. He is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. This is the the regular high priest he's talking about here at this point. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. Remember on the Day of Atonement, he starts with the bull for himself and his family. Then he does the goat that's for the whole people. Because of this, he has suffered these sacrifices, and no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Now this would have hit the the ears of the first century uh, Jewish converts uh, a little bit, um, would have made them a, a little bit curious, or they would have reacted to this, because since the time of Herod the Great, Herod the Great was choosing the high priests. They were almost like political appointees. And this carried on in the days of Jesus as well. So they would have thought, oh no, really? Chosen of God? Maybe, maybe we're, we've got this messed up a little bit. Because they did. Herod had no right to be doing that. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I'm not gonna tell you about Melchizedek. I just want you to be curious. It's kind of mysterious. We don't know much about it, but go read about it. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And when he was heard because of his reverence, he was heard because of his reverence. So Jesus is offering up Prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Where does that take you to? Gethsemane, right? Garden of Gethsemane. Loud cries and tears from the one who, to the one who was able to save him from death. It says he was heard because of his reverence. Does that strike you as odd? If he was heard, wouldn't he have been rescued from death and not had to die? That's how it might appear at first glance. But what did Jesus pray in the garden? Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will. That prayer was answered. The will of the Father was was what took place. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So some people are thrown by this stuff a little bit. We talked a little bit about it last week, this idea that Jesus learned from what he suffered, he was made perfect, it's, he learned obedience. It sounds like you know, he wasn't obedient, and then he became obedient. He wasn't perfect, he became perfect. He didn't know something and then he learned something. And the short version of a lot of condensed material from a lot of different commentators, which made a lot of sense to me, is, is that there's a difference between experiencing something and knowing it. And, and we talked about that last week, so get the podcast and you can get the rest of the story. Jesus needed, it says in the scripture, to go through these things so that he would be a compassionate and faithful high priest. Not a high priest who would be harsh, but also not a high priest who would avoid sin. There's a, great, there's a great word in here. Able to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. The word gently is a compound Greek word, metriopathion. Um, and what it means is sort of moderate passion or moderate uh, intense uh, emotion or drive. It's, it's moderated, it's medium. Um, Greek language hasn't changed much. If you order a coffee in Athens today and you ask for uh, a cafe linico medrio parcalo, they will bring you a coffee that is of medium sweetness. Medrio, medrio pathine. He's gonna deal in the medium. He's going to deal with sin, but he's gonna deal with sin with, he's not gonna be raging. He's not gonna be, you know, abusing people he's not going to be humiliating people he is going to deal gently with them so then the author goes on he makes it specific to Jesus he didn't take this role on himself but he was appointed by God not only that but he's a priest forever no more of this priesthood getting passed down from generation to generation the old guy dies and they bring up some young buck and teach him how to do it Jesus is our high priest forever. His appointment has no end. (sighs) Now, we're gonna barrage you with a lot of scripture, and I'm not gonna connect every one of the dots. I'm, I'm teasing you this morning. I want you to go home and read Hebrews. I want you to go, oh, you know, he just went right over that so fast, I didn't have a chance to really pay attention to that and get all the stuff out of it. That's intentional, guys. I don't wanna give you the whole thing. I want you to go home and be curious about Hebrews and to spend time with it. Let's go on into chapter nine. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. We just looked at them, right? The tabernacle, the temple, for a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lamp stand, the table and the bread of the presence, it's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, or the Holy of Holies, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. No kidding, it's 1106. In other words, while we were still doing it that way, we weren't ready to do it the new way yet. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest, Don't you just wanna keep going? When Christ appeared as the high priest, of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, (laughs) not made with hands, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places in heaven, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The author goes on to describe in chapter 9 how all the different objects in the temple and the holy place were purified by the sprinkling of blood. This is where you get that, that... verse that we quote so often, that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins, okay? After he lays out how that took place, he then goes on, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things. All this stuff, all those pictures we looked at, copies of the heavenly things. It was necessary for those things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once, for all at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, after having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Remember who we're talking to, We got a bunch of Jewish converts to Christianity. They're suffering persecution. They're starting to have doubts. They're wondering, maybe we should go back. And the author of Hebrews says, let's think about this. The old way were just the shadows of the heavenly things. The old way, these were just pictures. They were images. They were designed to set the scene for Christ's coming. The old high priests would die. You have a high priest who is never going to die. The old priests had to keep offering sacrifices over and over and over again. This priest doesn't have to do that. The old priests used blood that wasn't their own. This priest, he used his own blood. Why would you go back? He's coming a second time. Not to deal with sin, he's already done that to save those who are eagerly waiting for him that's you guys in your persecution in your public affliction in the seizure of your property all of you guys who are starting to wonder hang in there he's coming and it's not to deal with sin because he's already done that he's coming to save those who are eagerly waiting for him and i'm going to keep reading And with this chapter, we're gonna kind of bring this section to a close and then we're going to look towards communion. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. In other words, if it worked, why would we keep doing it? Wouldn't be any need, right? If you did it and did it right once, there would be no need to do it again. But we obviously have to keep doing it and doing it. It's a shadow of what's to come. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin every year For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, (laughs) you gotta love this. When Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. (laughs) But a body, a body you have prepared for me. He's talking about sacrifices, guys. He says, the blood of bulls and goats You didn't desire that, but you made a body for me so that I could be the sacrifice. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When you said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure, In the sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You're a Jew, you've grown up in Jerusalem, you have watched sacrifices taking place over and over and over and over again. This guy comes along, he says, guess what? It's done. The old order's been done away with. We have one sacrifice and, that, and it's done. He sat down at the right hand of God. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying this is the covenant that I will make with them, After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. We don't need any other priest than Jesus. We don't need any other sacrifice than the one he has already made. therefore brothers since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus the holy places wait a minute nobody goes in there people die if they go in there and they get it wrong we're entering the holy places can you imagine how staggering this would have been in the ears of a Jew who maybe watched from the courtyard as the priests went in. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Matthew 27:51 describes how when Jesus died, the temple curtain was torn. In two, wasn't torn a little bit, wasn't roughed up or abraded. It was ripped in half from top to bottom. 30 feet wide, 60 feet tall, and four inches thick. Some estimates were that it weighed maybe as much as four tons and took a few hundred guys to hold it. It tears from top to bottom. (laughs) It separated the holy place from the holy of holies. We have access into the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Not just access, but we're told to enter with confidence into the holy place by the blood of Jesus. His flesh was rent, his flesh was torn. When his flesh was torn, the temple veil was ripped in half. How'd you like to have gone in the temple after that? I wonder what the priest thought. They walked into the holy place and they saw this thing ripped in half. We have a new and living way by which we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. What a staggering thought! What an amazing change of order. Now, the shadows are done away with because we have the thing that's been casting the shadow. We have the reality. We have the perfect sacrifice. We have the perfect high priest. We have a new covenant, and we have access to the presence of God. This priest remains forever. His sacrifice, done, done seated at the right hand of God. There's nothing in your life that needs to be atoned for that has not already been atoned for. <laughs> Amen? Let us draw near with full assurance of faith. As the guys who are gonna help with the communion come forward, let's go ahead and pray. Jesus, it's uh, it, it's it's hard to even it's hard to even pull all this together into a coherent prayer. I, I'm I'm just amazed by you. I'm amazed by the plan of the Father. I'm amazed at what you did for us. I'm amazed that you would have come into the body of a man and done this but I am so thankful that you have made a way for us you present our souls to God you have secured our access to God thank you so much we're so grateful this morning as we come to your table pray that you'd help us as we meditate, maybe in a little different way, on what you did and the context, in history, your people, the Jews. Lord, we come before you this morning, we, we just wanna pause, we don't wanna rush this moment Lord, we take some time just to bring our requests to you, to bring our hearts before you, to think about your atonement, to think about its perfection, its completeness. Lord, I pray as we pause before you this morning that people will bring their sins to you, Your word says that you are a faithful high priest. You are faithful when we confess our sins to you to forgive us and cleanse us. Jesus, we come to you this morning with full assurance of faith. Trust in your sacrifice on our behalf. As we come to your table, Lord, may we honor you, may we remember you, may we exalt in what you have done for us. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.